Hey everyone, Carrie Thomas here, assistant producer of Memory Motel. I'm here to tell you, the listeners of this podcast, that Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you an opportunity to check out their services. Here's a book recommendation from the Memory Motel team based off of our previous episodes. Remember Julia Shaw from episode five, the woman who literally blew your mind and convinced college students that they committed a crime when they were 13? Well, she wrote an awesome book called The Memory Illusion, Why You May Not Be Who You Think You Are. We highly recommend the audiobook, which is available on Audible. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash memorymotel. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash memorymotel for your free audiobook. And I'll be back next week with another recommendation. Enjoy your free audiobook. Welcome to Memory Motel. It's Terrence, and you're listening to The Right to Oblivion, Part 2. If you haven't heard Part 1 yet, please stop, go back, and listen to that one first. Thanks. Here's Victor Meyer Schoenberger from Part 1. If you don't remember, he's the author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. I I once was at a radio call-in show, and I had uh, somebody call in and say, my entire life was destroyed a couple of weeks ago. Somebody in my community found out by essentially Googling me that I had served time in prison. And even though that was years ago, they discovered my mugshot. Now, thanks to that information that is no longer relevant to who I am today, I am being ostracized. We are all changing. We're all evolving as human beings all the time. Why should we always carry all of our past baggage with us? And why should we always, as we do this, take away the chance of forgiveness? The inability to forget may lead us into an inability to forgive, not just as individuals, but as a society as a whole. Since our digital memory holds on to everything, both the relevant and the irrelevant details alike, it can cast an ever-present and unchanging shadow. I think we, to a degree, know who we are as people, but I don't think we know who we are as digital entities and how it's going to be in the future. I mean, I just think that that world is kind of like this big shadow, and eventually it's going to reach a point where it's not even a shadow of us. It's just going to be a shadow of what it says of us. That's Frank Ahern. He helps people get out from under that shadow. He severs our ties to the digital past, and he does this with a skill he learned as a kid. We grew up in Inwood, uptown, on 207th and Vermilia, and we went out to a Chinese restaurant that was on Dykeman Street. You know, it must have been like my sister's communion or confirmation because that was like a big deal for us going out to dinner, you know? And my father says to the guy that we're tourists, you know, and wanted to know if he could keep the lobster fork. Watching my father lie, you know, over a fork. And it, to me, it was like this like, kind of grand illusion that took place. And the guy's like, yeah, sure, no problem, keep it. And it's the first time I realized if you lied, you can get something. I just found it like, wow, I'll lie and I'll get things. I was never impressed with my father, but that moment impressed me. I do remember he said this, he said... Those stories were the essence of what it was to be alive. It was heaven. 
trust that? Before Frank would use deception to help people escape from the past, he'd use it to get himself out of the neighborhood. I was always kind of like searching for something, even as a kid. My father, he just didn't understand that because he was like a real neighborhood guy. You know, I'm a guy who's like looking to get out of the neighborhood. I used to wander around the Upper East Side all the time because I kind of felt like, you know, God, they got men in their buildings who wear suits and nice restaurants. And, you know, I just always found myself outside looking in, trying to figure out how do you get there? My mother was like really funny. She was tell us like how well we are doing in life, you know what I'm saying, even though we had government cheese. And she used to tell us, you know, my grandfather worked for the stock market, right? But he was an elevator operator on Wall Street, you know? So, so my mother had this way of like insulating us and it was just more a sense of like, I just didn't understand why them and why not us. But I did know I want me some of that, you know? And I knew that at an early age, if I wanted some of that, I had to go get it on my own. I ended up getting a job doing undercover work in retail stores. I would go work in like Abraham and Strauss as just a regular employee catching employees stealing. And I took out this whole ring of like 15 people. And then they sent me like Bergdorf Goodmans. And Frank was so good at understanding how thieves worked that the undercover agency promoted him to a desk job. But then I started working in the office and running the other undercovers, which was kind of boring. But there was this guy who was doing the skip tracing. I was fascinated by it. I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. Pick up the phone, you find someone. Frank makes picking up the phone and finding someone sound simple. It's not. Skip tracing references people who skip town and the art of tracing their steps to find them. You have to rely on creative means. And Frank's boss didn't think he was up for the challenge. Tried to convince my boss to give me the job. No, you don't, you don't need a job, Frank. Just do what you're doing, do what you're doing. And finally, I aggravated him enough. And he says, listen, if you can get a copy of my phone records, you can, you can do the skip tracing. Back in the day, skip tracing required people to pretext, which is presenting yourself as someone you're not in order to gain information. In this case, phone records. It's professional lying, and Frank was good at it. So that night, I went to a payphone, and I called AT&T. And I posed as my boss and said, hi, how you doing? It's going to take a few minutes. Can we call him with the itemization on my bill? What do you need, Mr. So-and-so? I just need to date the call and how much. You know, you called this number, that number. And I was like, wow. It was like a rush, man. Went in the next day, threw down the phone records, gave me the job. When you're creating a pretext, you have to say to yourself, what's going to motivate this person? Sometimes it's making them afraid where they'll be responsible for something. And sometimes it's just making them feel really good. Hey, this is Pat Brown, you know, Verizon Wireless. We're down over here. Can you bring up a customer account for me? How's your day going, by the way? I, I always had this devious nature to me, that I know, you know? And, you know, it's the idea of getting over. And uh, when I first did the pretext in the social engineering, it just totally fed into that. You know, it, it was just, it just touched this part of me that was like, yeah, because you know, I wanted to be a jewel thief as a kid. My first pretext call to when I was getting phone records, I made $4,000 in a nine-minute call. Skip tracing was lucrative for Frank, but it had its limitations. 
say if you want motor vehicle records in Texas, you had to know a private investigator who knew a cop who would access it illegally. You know, you wanted airline records, you need to know somebody who worked in the airline. Okay, you always need somebody who worked within those organizations. But since Frank was so good at pretexting, he decided to cut out the middlemen. And I just figured out if I needed criminal records, I'd call the police department, tell them I'm in the 34th precinct or I'm in the 50th precinct in the Bronx and call a precinct in Brooklyn and tell our, our teletype is down, you know. So I just figured out, learned the ins and outs of the organization and been, <laughs> turned into this amazing business. I, in the beginning, most of my clients were private investigators. And then it kind of swelled into, I did a lot of work for tabloids back then and you know, and then, you know, people start saying, hey, I know this guy, Frank, and, you know, insurance companies, lawyers, trucking companies, you know, it just kind of, people just started referring other people to me. It was, it was pretty interesting business. My business went straight up until George Bush became president, and then it just changed. The year 2007 brought us a new federal law called the Telephone Records and Privacy Protection Act. This law which was enacted by President Bush, prohibits obtaining phone records through pretexting. Which is a process that involves obtaining telephone records without an individual's knowledge or permission. I lost probably like 75% of my business. I was near homeless. It was like, wow, lost everything. The new federal law forced Frank to question what he knew best, deception. The deception, the skip tracing, social engineering, the pretext became all I was. So being able to lie to my ex-wife was easy. You know, and being able to cheat on her was easy. And it took a long time to realize that I got like divorced, bankrupt, ordered by the IRS, like all in this one period of time. And I was like drinking really heavy and, you know, George Bush was in office and there was just no light at the end of my tunnel between the, the house, the car, the boat, the motorcycle, the, my apartment, my wife's house and her store and my office. I, just, I was just like so underneath the wheel and I remember I was going to shoot myself in the head. And I just said to myself, you know, I need to do one thing I can control because I couldn't control the divorce, I couldn't control the bankruptcy, I couldn't control the audit, I couldn't control anything. I said, I can control the drinking. And so I, one morning, I just, I just woke up the next morning and I just said, that's it. And instead of buying a 12-pack of beer and for a Guinness, because I was drinking like 16 beers a night, I went out and bought a 12-pack of O'Doul's. And my just world just changed and I found myself wandering bookstores and, you know, just really realizing that if anything was going to happen in my life, it would have to come from me. Frank sobered up. He found himself in bookstores instead of bars. And it was in one of these bookstores that Frank discovered his future. He spotted a guy at the cash register who was buying books on privacy, offshore banking, and various guides to Costa Rica. He paid with a credit card. And right then, Frank, as a skip tracer, knew that if this guy was trying to disappear to Costa Rica he'd be found by his credit card bill. It was a rookie move. So Frank approached him, introduced himself, explained his history as a skip tracer, and gave him an old business card. The guy eventually called Frank and said he was a whistleblower who needed help. 
Well, at first I was like, well, I don't know about disappearing. But what I realized was that I know how to find people and I know how to find information. So if I can make sure, what would somebody do to go find him? How do I combat that? And how does he combat that? Through deception. And so that's, you know, kind of like what led me into the, the disappearing business. And the biggest obstacle I always have is, is saying this can be accomplished by using this piece of deception. Because everybody thinks deception is such a negative thing. Frank's disappearing business offers two services. The first one is physically helping a person disappear, like Evan tried to do in part one of this series. The second one is cutting a person's ties to their digital past. They're both expensive services. Frank started with the first service, helping people disappear from their bullies, their stalkers, and whatever threat made them want to hide in the first place. Disappearing is not really about disappearing. Disappearing is really about connections. What you've done in the past can connect to the present, and what you do in the present can connect to the future. So it's really not about disappearing. It's making sure you don't create a connection to what's behind you. Imagine yourself in high school, and you're at this dance, and you ask this girl to dance, and it's the bully's girlfriend when he's gonna hunt you down and beat you with a baseball bat. You avoid him the whole week. He doesn't catch you. But you happen to deliver pizza on Friday nights. You ride your bicycle, and you go to a house, and you realize, oh, it's the bully's house. If I ring the doorbell, you can open the door and hit me with a stick. Not good. You can't return the pizza because you get fired from your job. So what do you do? What do you do? You ride your bike down the block, find another teenager, say, hey, listen, deliver this pizza. You can keep the tip. Just bring me back the pizza money. He goes and he does that. He rings the bell. He makes the connection. He gives you the pizza money, you go back to your boss, and you're safe. That's disappearing, is how can I exist without creating a connection to the past, something that happened. Frank sees connections as ties to the past. And the internet has made those ties stronger and more visible than ever before. You know, it's the first time in society where children will be able to see the sins of the parents' past because, you know, every newspaper is just uploading everything. And, you know, you could be really a decent, honest person and have a great life, and something you did in college is now coming out, and your children will see it. Frank started his career before the Internet, and now what he sees are clients for whom the past is ever-present with the unforgiving memory of the Internet. The the Internet's unforgiving. You know, and listen, good people do bad things sometimes. Just they do stupid things. And the problem is once it's online, it it can just destroy them and destroys their family. And so how do you rebuild? How do you get a job, you know, after you've done this really stupid thing here? Sometimes you can. Because no matter what, that negative, that unkind, that dangerous piece of information known about you, it's still there. It ain't going anywhere. And so... What I do with my clients is I make it appear that somebody who shares your name did that dirty deed, not you. Frank creates a fiction, a false persona to take on whatever you did that the internet won't leave in the past. Here's an example. Frank had a client who'd done an amateur porn in his youth. You know, it was minimally online, but if you popped his name in, it would eventually down the search engine, you'd see it but his photo was on the box. That's where the problem was. So basically I built this website of this photographer and I contacted the company and said, listen, that photograph is copyright protected. 
It's going back 20 years. It wasn't worth it for them to research, so they just took it down. Okay, problem solved. Next problem, create a guy in Cincinnati. There's a porn guy, same name as him, and he takes credit for doing that porn movie. That's the only way to combat online information is you have to basically create another entity that takes responsibility for that action or that information, that mistake, whatever it may be. But you have to do it in a way where it, it plays out correctly. What Frank means by plays out correctly is that the fiction spreads and populates the internet until what Frank made up appears real. They'll have Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts, and I'll just kind of evolve it and just keep, you know, it, you know, think of it like a vine. Other people pick it up and they spread it and it just, just moves on. It's like everybody wants to spread information so they can spread their information. That's the way to do it. You want to be popular, spread somebody else's popular information and they'll spread your information. The internet is filled with Frank's fiction, but sometimes his advice for a client is not to sever ties to the past, but to accept it. So, I mean, there is a time where you just have to grin and bear it. I had a client of mine, very wealthy, his kid got into a DUI, killed someone, right? Wanted to create all this disinformation. And I'm like, you know what? I says, it's not gonna work. I says, you know, it, there's just too much stuff out there about your kid. And you get one journalist who sees this disinformation, it's gonna make matters worse. I said, why don't you just build a website where your kid does something good? You know, and eventually the guy realized, you know something, you're right, this is a stupid way of doing it. And so sometimes you have to face the music and sometimes it's better. It ain't easy, it sucks. But you know, you gotta live with it. Facing the past can be hard for anyone, including Frank. When you do what I do, you're always dealing with people's lives. There's always a life kind of like in the balance or something in the balance. And you say to yourself, God, I know a lot of shit about people, you know? And, uh, you know, it's not fun wondering who's going to kick in the door someday. My biggest fear is like, am I going to put a bullet in my head because I know too much? You know, I've always been motivated to make money. But I think I'm at a different point in my life where it's not so much about the money. It's, just, it's time to leave it behind. But I do like the deception. When, you know, disappearing people ends, what's a productive use of your deception for the future? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. It's a hard question, too. To be honest with you, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I'm at this point where, you know, maybe that's just part leaves me. Maybe it's just something that just ends. Frank may reinvent himself once again, through deception or not. But for the people who don't have his expertise or the money to hire him, reinvention may not be an option. Here's Victor again. By basically drowning the, the stuff that you want to have forgotten out with stuff that is deliberately faked. That strategy is a workable strategy, but it's also an incredibly costly strategy. What I worry about is these people, hundreds of thousands of people who cannot afford thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in order to get their digital persona carefully curated. What are we doing about them?
In the next episode, we hear from Eric, one of these people. Thanks as always for listening to Memory Motel. If you enjoyed part two of The Right to Oblivion, part three will be available September 13th. And while you're waiting, please sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe on our website, memorymotel.audio, where you'll also find links related to this episode, which was produced by me, Terrence Mickey, and Bart Washaw, who composed the theme music, with production assistance from Carrie Ann Thomas, Carson Briggs Frame, and Samira Tazari. Please get in touch with us on Twitter at Memory Motel or Terrence underscore Mickey. Until next time, I can't wait to see what you find when you go back.